It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. I'm here to remind you to take the Slate survey. It will be open through April 1st, and your answers help us make a better slate. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com survey. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! No, I am the father What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Sam Adams, a senior editor at Slate, and I'm joined today by staff writer Rebecca Onion. Normally we spoil new releases, but since there are no new releases this week, we are spoiling a movie from 2011 that's been climbing the iTunes rental chart. Contagion. Steven Soderbergh's pandemic movie has been receiving a lot of attention because of the movie's parallels to the coronavirus outbreak. It is something that I had been putting off watching for a while (laughs) and then sort of forced myself to watch last week. You did as well. Hello. Hello. I'm excited to talk about this, I think. Question mark. (laughs) (laughs) We're both remote right now, as is everyone. How are you doing? Well, thank you very much for asking. I am in my bedroom, and my three-year-old and my husband are right outside the door. So hopefully we will not be treated to a cameo. (laughs) Although maybe it would be fun. Who knows? How are you doing? I'm okay. I am uh, likewise at home in my office. I have a 10-year-old doing what they're calling distance learning. We're holding up okay. Um, Low-key freaking out like every other person in the country, <laughs> but watching Contagion. Yes, that's right. When did you watch this? Had you been sort of wrestling with the idea of doing it or not? How did it play for you at this precise moment? Well, I first saw it when it came out. I have to say, I don't know. I completely understand how people can feel like something like that is never going to happen to them. Because for about a day after I saw it when it first came out, I was like, oh, no, there's going to be some new virus that's going to be really bad and everything's gonna be terrible. And then I immediately pushed it to the back of my mind and didn't think about it again. (laughs) I proceeded to have poor hygiene and not wash my hands and all the things that you're supposed to learn from that were lost on me. I watched it again at the end of January to write about it for Slate. And There were some parts of it that made me think, oh, this didn't wear very well, or it's not complex enough or something. But then it's a movie. We can talk about all that. (laughs) Obviously, it was still pretty terrifying, perhaps more so. What about you? Like you, I saw it, you know, when it came out. I think I may have written about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was something that I know people started talking, you know, probably in January about like rewatching Contagion. And I was just like, hell no. (laughs) Like, why would I want to do that right now? But then uh, we came up with the idea of me interviewing... The screenwriter, Scott Burns, mm-hmm. which I did last week. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. crap. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have to watch it now. Here we go. So I kind of, you know, steeled myself, watched it, I think, Monday or Tuesday night uh, of last week, maybe 48 hours before Slate started closing its offices uh-huh. um, because of the pandemic. Uh-huh. To go back to what you said first, I mean, I watched it at the time. And I believe I'm fortunate enough not to have put this into print. But uh-huh. I do recall thinking at the time, 
One of the main funding agents for Contagion is um, what's called Participant Media, which is a sort of Jeff Skoll company that's put up to sort of fund like socially conscious filmmaking. And that can be sort of a broad net. You know, the fiction stores usually have some sort of sort of social, you know, component or they're meant to kind of educate people. And I remember seeing this at the time and being like, well, uh-huh. they really got to stretch the idea on that uh-huh. one. This clearly isn't about anything real or important that we need to pay attention to. That, I think, qualifies as one of the stupidest things I've ever thought. <laughs> but certainly watching it now, I mean, the, the striking thing is, and it feels uncanny for a little while, you're just watching it and just all these kind of terms that are coming up, mm-hmm. the stuff about social distancing is mentioned in there, fomites, yeah. that's the reason you don't touch your face. Yep. The idea of a, an R-naught, which is basically the, the number of people that an infected person can pass the disease onto, it's all in there. And you think, oh my God, like how do they see the future? And then you think, well, everybody who knows anything about this saw this coming. When I talked to Scott Burns, he did research with a number of experts in the field, people who have, are now like self-quarantining because they went to China to investigate the source of the outbreak. And Laurie Garrett, the author of a book called The Coming Plague, person who helped like wipe out smallpox. Mm. So they all knew and were saying this stuff about 10 years ago when he was doing the research. They were like, well, yeah, I know you keep saying it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen. Like, we'll be fine or we'll, we'll handle with it. Long story short, yeah. too late. It's like watching this now was very uncanny and weird and of course it's like a little bit frightening but also like weirdly comforting like one of the weird things about fiction is that even if it's kind of realizing our worst fears like you're still sitting there not in a movie theater at the moment but at home watching it and you have that literal distance between you and the thing and that sort of is helpful somehow yeah well it honestly makes me wonder because i mean all those people that you mentioned who've been knowing this for years who've been writing about it and thinking about it for so long and trying to warn us it's like okay so this movie did scare people i think when it came out i mean i remember the reaction being like oh no like people who were germaphobes didn't want to go and people who weren't went and then were kind of like super conscious for a little while about it in a way if the movie was intended to be like socially triggering in some way it quote unquote, worked. But it makes me wonder whether any movie can really, like teach a lesson of the magnitude that this movie was trying to get across. I don't know, like no amount of fear that you can get from a movie could move people in the way that they wanted to. Right. Yeah. And it's something I think about a lot as, you know, a critic and someone who is kind of invested often in the, the kind of deeper messages in these movies, like does this stuff sort of actually work? I think you can kind of give people like a little push in the right direction, but they have to be sort of close to hearing the message. And I'm not even entirely sure many of the people in the U.S. are there now. And they definitely yeah. were in 2011. Yeah. Who can measure this? But I have to wonder, like, to what degree, like, the same people who find this idea scary are the people who aren't there now in some weird way. Right. I'm just speculating. No data. I have to say, I feel like the way that the plot unfolds in this movie, the way that Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Beth Emhoff, getting the virus is kind of like a morality play in some situation. Like, she's cheating. (laughs) Okay, so Gwyneth Paltrow is Beth Emhoff. She has a small child, also has a job that takes her to Hong Kong. She goes to Hong Kong to open a factory for her company, and it's there that she gets infected. And she gets the virus when she shakes hands with a cook, we find out at the end. Uh, I think it's a casino where she's visiting with people from her work. And then on the way back to her home, which I think is in Milwaukee, she sleeps with a man that she had been sleeping with before she was with her husband. 
So in a way, there's sort of this way that she like gets what's coming to her or something and like the logic of the movie. And I know there has to be some sort of story behind why a pandemic starts. But watching it again, I was like, ooh, that, this makes me uncomfortable <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> like this woman's getting like super punished in a way. Yeah, there is yeah. a little bit of a sort of like Hollywood production code idea yeah. that where like people have to be like punished for their sin or yeah, that's right. whatever. One little piece of trivia that I think is interesting to mention there is that we we never see the man that she has the affair with. I think yeah. that they meet in Chicago on the way home. We hear him on the phone, and that is the voice of the director, Steven Soderbergh. Oh, really? That's funny. So that's his little Hitchcock cameo yeah. in this movie. <laughs> the very first thing we see or hear in this movie is the sound of Gwyneth Paltrow coughing mm-hmm. over a black screen. We see her face is kind of shiny. She's flushed. The movie is called Contagion. We saw the poster <laughs> on the way into the theater, if nothing else. Like, we know she's sick right away. And one of the things that the movie does so effectively, like right from the beginning, is it just stigmatizes the idea of touch. So she's like sitting in an airport bar and the camera's sort of following like and, and pulling focus on her hands as they like touch a little dish of peanuts on the bar. She hands a credit card to another person. The car goes through the slot where, of course, the germs will linger and then be passed on to the next guard and a person after that and so on and so forth. And I watched this before social distancing had really kind of kicked in hardcore. But I mean, one thing that I'm hearing from a lot of people, you know, and it's true for me, too, even watching, I watched like the sequel to Babe last (laughs) night. And (laughs) even there, like, you're just so aware in person, but just also even in fiction, like every time people touch each other in a movie, and I was like, oh, don't. Don't do that. <laughs> and so this is a movie that's just super wonderfully like paranoid about this. You just see, you know, Kowloon, who I think was a waiter at the casino. And then you see him, you know, his hand on the subway pole. You're getting into like a crowded elevator with people. And you're just hyper aware of all these little connections that we make with people mm-hmm. in their very sort of crowded modern world. And I believe that the CDC uh, investigator played by Kate Winslet actually makes a little speech about face touching, which is another (laughs) aspect of it that at the time we didn't sink in with me. And now I'm like, face touching is all I think about. Yeah. I mean, we're all like sort of, you know, full of like gallows humor right now. My darkest joke. This is like natural selections way of like wiping out face touchers. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that that seems to be kind of all of us. Uh So yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow makes her way back home. Some of this we don't see Still sort of the last montage of the movie, but having gone to a casino, like, you know, blown on people's dice as they're shooting crap. Oh, that's and, right. You know, sh- yep. Like, hugged people and shake hands with them and passed her glasses around and basically got her, like, Gwyneth germs <laughs> all over the whole world. Yeah, so this thing starts spreading fast. It's called, I think, the M1 virus, which is something they made up. It's kind of based on a couple different viruses that they researched like coronavirus, it's thought to have originated in a, a bat. And then we see it been, been like passed to a pig. So they say somewhere in the world, the wrong bat met up with the wrong pig. Yeah. And then got passed to humans. So she makes it home to her husband, um, played by Matt Damon, their young son, who uh, becomes like, I think maybe the second person in the movie to die from it. She just, you know, feels a little under the weather and then just kind of falls to the ground and starts seizing. She dies extremely quickly, I think within like the first 10 minutes of the movie. It's sort of like a classic movie device that goes back at least as far as Psycho, where you cast like this huge star in this big role. It's her face on the poster, and then you kill him right away. And that's just like, 
a shock in every way that we can think of. I mean, you don't you don't put Gwyneth Paltrow in your movie and then kill her. Yeah. Let alone like cut her skull open and peel back the skin to look at her like liquefied brain, <laughs> you know, and it tells us like, okay, this virus is like not fucking around. Like it's yeah. not, it's not respecting the sort of the usual rules in movies where the more famous a person is, the more likely they are to survive to the end. Not only that, but Gwyneth, I mean, I think at the time she didn't quite have this goopified reputation. I think she was just getting into doing all the cookbook and goop and, supplements and all that sort of like wellness stuff. But watching it now, I'm like, oh, like, it really strikes the fear of God into you to see someone who's like sort of the a shining avatar of purity, <laughs> get taken down so quickly by something. None of that green juice is helping her. <laughs> yes. And this was basically right around when she was starting to make her way out of acting. I mean, yep. the thing she was doing after that, she had you know all her various like, 10-minute appearances in various Avengers movies and, and stuff like that. I mean, her last, you know, lead was the movie she did before this, Country Strong, and she really kind of hasn't done one since. So this was almost sort of her, like, kind of announcing, like, yeah. kind of killing off her, like, movie career. I'm out of here. As well. Yeah. See yes. my brain? I'm done. Yes. So anyway, so she makes it home to her husband, played by Matt Damon, infects their son, Clark, who I think is, you know, about, about eight or yeah. something like that. They both die very that. quickly. Yeah, I don't like seeing that little kid die. It is dark. Yeah. I mean, they, they spare us his death agonies. We just kind of see him dead in his bed yeah. with some, like, you know, vomit crushing around yes. his mouth. That's bad enough. Thank you very much. Yeah. But this is where we kind of discover that, you know, Matt Damon's character is presumptively immune. I mean, I think that they're trying to make him, like, the audience surrogate in a way and in a way his immunity makes that interesting like if i ever got too worried i would always relax my mind by thinking oh well matt damon will live through this <laughs> like it'll be okay which is an interesting dynamic to introduce into your pandemic fiction to have some people who don't get it there isn't really a main character in this movie but he's the closest thing to an everyman mm -hmm. like pretty much all the other regular characters are kind of high-level scientists of some point the who or or the CDC, you know, Matt Damon is just kind of like the schmo, like muddling his way through this. Yeah, he's a pretty good guy. It's good to have him be like the one person you like don't have to worry about in that. That's respect. right. Like there's lots of other things to worry about. Yep. Yep. You feel a little sorry for him because his wife cheated on him and then died. <laughs> and then he finds out yes. about it after she dies. Which is pretty embittering. Right. They say like, yeah. oh, did she have any reason to have any contact with anybody in Chicago? And it's clear that they already know. Yeah. What the reason is? Kate Winslet, I think, has to tell him. And then he has to deal with his teenage daughter, who's, I guess, his daughter from a previous marriage. I think both the kids are from previous marriages. But his teenage daughter is with him. And so he has to figure out how to, like, keep her in the house. And she has a boyfriend that makes that hard. <laughs> so that's even more of an every dad situation. Right. And as people who are both, like, trying to keep children at home, as a lot of people are right now, like, that is a son of a bitch. I mean, my daughter is not a teenager thank God for all sorts of reasons. But it is like really tough. I mean, yeah. the kids like sort of get what's going on. But I mean, you're seeing, I'm sure the same stuff all over social media about these sort of groups of like idiot teenage boys, like, you know, running around and like, you know, spitting on stuff and coughing on people because they all think it's like a big joke. Yeah. People in their 20s like cramming bars over the weekend. Yeah. And that's one thing about the difference between the scenario in Contagion and the scenario in our lives right now is that I think it's MEV-1 is the right. name of the syndrome that you get in the same way that we have coronavirus that's giving people COVID. People are getting MEV-1. I believe that it's supposed to be like a 25% mortality rate or something or like- They say 20 to 30, yeah. yeah. So the fear that people have in the movie is different from 
like the healthier, younger people right now are social distancing to be kind, (laughs) hopefully, and hopefully that becomes more of a widespread thing, you know, whatever other measures that are taken to make it socially encouraged to do. But in contagion, people are scared because if you get it, you might probably die. I don't believe that there's an age. Uh, Yeah, I don't think that issue comes up in it at all. It seems to be kind of an equal opportunity killer. Right. So like if your kid could get coronavirus and die, we would feel differently. There'd just be a different valence to it right now. I mean, I'm plenty scared because of the people that are going to be affected and also because of the economy. But I'm not like personally scared in the same way that people are in this movie. It's been very interesting for me to you know, both just in terms of watching and thinking about it and also talking it over with Scott Burns, the writer. Clearly, there are things about this virus in the movie that are much worse than things are now. You mentioned, I mean, this kills, you know, 20 to 30 percent. It starts off with an r naught of two, which is roughly what we think it is for COVID-19. And then it jumps at some point. They don't say to what, but they just say, well, we have, we have a new r naught. It's not two anymore. Hmm. And presumably it's, it's much higher. Yeah. It moves much faster. It's much deadlier. Part of that is scary, but it's also like kind of dramatic. And mm-hmm. it's weird to think of one of the issues we're having with COVID-19. One of the reasons it's been so difficult for us to kind of socially mobilize against it is because it's so undramatic. Yeah. In a way, like this two-week incubation period is just from like a virus propagation standpoint, like kind of a masterstroke because we just, we can't think that far ahead. Yeah. That's why people are making the climate change analogy, right? Like, it's like this thing that we're doing now that's going to hurt us in two weeks, and we can't even deal with curtailing our activities now for in service of two weeks, (laughs) let alone curtail our activities now in service of 20 years or 30 years. It's really striking to think that, like, one of before uh, Scott Burns, who wrote this, like, his first screen credit was as a producer on An Inconvenient Truth. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. So I I mentioned that to him. He's like, yeah, you're like, that's all I can think about. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So anyways, the pandemic is kind of catching on at this point. People are starting to realize it's going on. And this is when we introduce most of the movie's other characters who, as I mentioned, are kind of mostly doctor types, CDC epidemiologists. So we have Marion Cotillard's character, who is from the WHO. We have Lawrence Fishburne's character, who is from the CDC. We have Kate Winslet, who is, I think, sort of a epidemiologist. And they're all sort of fighting the disease from different angles. Jennifer Ailey's character, who is the kind of lab rat scientist, like searching for a vaccine. We have all these hyper-competent people coming in to take care of the virus. And that's like very comforting in a way. I mean, they're the ones who are saying, you know, this is really bad. Like, this is how bad it is. It keeps getting worse. And that's all freaky, but they do know what's going on. And then the one real contrast to that is this great sort of (laughs) scummy character played by Jude Law, Alan Crumody, who is a uh, a blogger. I'm obsessed with both how like on point the Jude Law character is and how insufficient this is (laughs) for what was actually going on right now for us. It's like such a 2011 character, I feel like, to be like, oh, a blogger, like, They could write anything they want. No editor is like holding them in. So you first see him at the beginning before everything starts trying to pitch an editor. He's failing to get 
a commission. The editor says, oh, like, we just don't have any money for it right now. I'm sorry. He is sort of like off the rails for the rest of the movie and is online lying about having the disease, lying about curing it with a thing called forsythia, which is some kind of homeopathic treatment that he's also selling and involved secretly behind the scenes in trying to basically manipulate markets for. Then even at one point in the development of the movie, he even like runs into his old editor on the street and she begs him for Forsythia because she's really sick. And it's all sort of like he ascends up through this chaos to a higher and higher point. He even gets to like appear on TV opposite the head of the CDC at one point. And basically this whole epidemic is like super great for him until it's not at the end. But for a while, it really works for him. The movie is kind of giving us the point of view that like even the paranoia are right about, you know, one thing sometimes. So yeah, so he's yeah. this kind of conspiracy theory blogger slash sort of, you know, failed journalist. I think it's yeah. be the Sun-Times newsroom that we see him at the beginning, like pitching right. his article yeah. in person for some reason, because that's, you know, what freelancers always do is just show up at your office and that's pitch That's definitely how it works. And they're like, no, we don't think so. And then he storms out and says, print media is dying. Oh, yeah. Then he goes online and starts talking about his... Two million unique users trying to, you know, get people to pay attention. So he is one of the first people to see this virus taking root and start spreading the word about it. But he is, of course, kind of only interested in raising the alarm. You know, he's not actually dealing with all the facts. He's just kind of becomes drunk on this. By the end, his audience for his website has gone up to like 12 million or something like that. And yeah, as you mentioned, he starts hawking this herbal supplement called Forsythia, which he claims can help people get over the virus. And and we find out at the end, it's a little ambiguous for a while. And then we find out definitively, he just straight up like fakes having the virus. He's doing these kind of, you know, video logs. So he's telling people like, oh, I'm really sick and I've got it now and I'm taking Forsythia. And then later he's like, I'm fine. And yeah. then at the end, he gets kind of arrested, and it turns out, A, that he completely lied about having the virus because they do, like, a blood test, and he doesn't have any of the antibodies to it. And B, that he has been, you know, sort of selling for Scythia on the side and has made, you know, like $8 million hawking it as well. Mm-hmm. And at the end, it's like he's going to get punished. Like, he gets taken by government agents, which is, like, another aspect of this movie that's very morality tale. It's like, uh, that worked out. One of the things that's interesting about this movie is you know, because it's about a, a pandemic spreading all over the place, it has a kind of conspiratorial, like, air mm-hmm. to it. It's about this kind of terrible thing happening, and it's alarmist, just telling us, you know, this could happen any moment. But it is also, the movie is a kind of deeply, deeply institutionalist mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So it yeah. really is about, you know, the CDC will save us, the WHO will save us, there will be bad bloggers who are bad <laughs> because they're, like, not part of an established newspaper Maybe they're right about things, but they're also like unreliable. And at the end, like the law will come back in and punish That's them. Right. And, you know? Yep. <laughs> yes. The men in black will be here to take them away. Yeah. <laughs> yes. One thing that it's really scary to me is not the places in which the movie is worse, but the places in which the movie is better. Yeah. The federal response in this movie is so much more competent and inspiring than what we have seen in the U.S. Mm-hmm. so far. I mean, there's little like moments that are seeded throughout it that sort of make you distrust the government response a little bit, like the time when the Alan Crumwe character challenges Lawrence Fishburne's Ellis Cheever on live TV about the fact that he warned his fiance ahead of time to get out of town. He gave her privileged information. And then there's one other instance where the Ellis Cheever character is trying to get 
the Kate Winslet character, Aaron Mears, out of town. When she gets sick, he's trying to like fly her out of town to to give her hospital treatment. And the flight gets taken by a senator who basically like Bigfoots her out of her treatment. And she ends up dying. But those two exceptions aside, all the government actions are great. <laughs> and they work pretty well. And it ends up sort of, as you say, being a, a movie that seeds a lot of trust in the government's public health efforts. I guess it is really a movie that sort of puts his faith in, I guess for lack of a better word, kind of middle management. Yeah. I think it was a Soderbergh I was reading an interview with, and he was saying they made themselves rules for this movie as Scott Burns was writing it. And one of them was like, this is going to be a disaster movie where we don't see the president. Mm. Um, so that's sort of upper echelon. Like we don't see, there's no, you know, senators or presidents or governors or any of the sort of upper echelon people in it. And we, we get sort of vague wind, at, you know, as you mentioned that, uh, you know, Kate Winslet's character gets denied a flight. It's like the one plane with an isolation pod yeah. that they could fly her to a treatment center That's on right. it because some, you know, senator has to come back from somewhere or she can't get on it. And then that's the last flight before they ground all air traffic. So she's just stuck. Yeah. And then she eventually dies. So, yeah. you know, we definitely have the sense that like the upper levels of government are, you know, not doing what they could be or certainly not like giving anybody any hope in these dark times, yep. but the people whose job it really is specifically to deal with this kind of thing are dealing with this kind of thing. That's right. The other thing is that the way the vaccine gets found, it's a research scientist basically sort of like taking it upon himself to break the rules. He uses a method to grow the cells that the CDC had said, don't do this. So he basically sort of takes matters into his own hands. This is the Ian Sussman character, the Elliot Gold character. Right. And then Ali Hextall, who's played by Jennifer Ely, who's a scientist with the CDC, she develops a vaccine using this cultured cells, and she gives herself the vaccine to test herself. So that's another instance in which it's like, these people are really brave. <laughs> but I'm also like, ooh, am I hoping that there are people out there like breaking the rules to do this right now? <laughs> Like, is that what I'm hoping? You know, I don't know. Like, it makes it seem like, oh, they wouldn't have found a vaccine unless these two people who, again, it's like, they're not like fancy, famous people. They're just like scientists in the bureaucracy who have decided to do something a little out of the lines. Right. And that's a sort of startling contrast with, um, this is about a week ago, the article that ran in the New York Times saying that there was an effort sort of early on in Seattle to test a bunch of samples because they had just been, I think, doing a study on, like a flu study on people. So they had all these oh, samples yeah. that they could have tested to see if people were carrying COVID, in part because of, you know, HIPAA and like medical confidentiality rules and because they their samples hadn't been drawn for that purpose. They were just told, like, no, don't test them. If you're testing, stop. I mean, those laws are in place for a reason, yada, yada. But that was a place where it, at least the slant of the article was like, that was a place where bureaucracy just like purely got in the way of something that could have mm. stopped. But I think it's kind of the worst spread in the country. Right now. Summer. Yeah, in Seattle. Yeah, but it's hard because it's like, well, am I rooting for, again, I guess it's a movie problem, a movie problem in depicting a pandemic. I mean, like, like you say, Soderbergh is trying really hard to show this as like a web of people who are being heroic together, kind of. But then in the end, the people who break through it are the ones who do something that they probably shouldn't have, or maybe they should have. Who knows? Is there a kind of a moment in a movie that really like struck home for you or felt particularly sort of resonant or chilling or? The scenes of the field hospitals, I think Kate Winslet, the Aaron Mears character is in Minneapolis or Chicago, and there's field hospitals being built in stadiums. The scenes in the field hospitals were just like, 
I hate seeing that. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, it's like, hopefully we build something like that, because apparently we're not going to have enough ICU beds and ventilators for everybody. But just seeing everyone laid out in lines like that, it just, uh, it's really upsetting. Hard to see right now. Right. It's characteristic of the movie and also very much of like Steven Soderbergh, who's just going to be like a ruthlessly economical filmmaker. I mean, I, I know this is a movie. I think he said there were the most versions of this movie than anything he's ever made. He had like 20 different cuts of it. Oh, really? There's a huge lacuna in it where Marion Cotillard's character, who's this WHO doctor, gets basically kidnapped and taken to this Chinese village and kind of held oh, yeah. hostage until they can deliver a vaccine to them. And she disappears from the movie for like half an hour and then yeah. we come back to her and, and she's just like teaching the kids there and has sort of settled into life in this village. And that's all kind of stuff that they shot that they then just completely cut out of the movie. Oh, So it plays as this really kind of like sort of daring narrative jump, but it's actually, it was just an editing decision yeah. that they made. But one of those cuts that especially is hard for me, striking powerful is Kate Winslet in the armory where they've set up this field hospital and you see her, kind of coughing and sweating. And then at some point later, there's just this direct cut to, you know, her face like wrapped in a plastic bag and duct taped and just being put into this like mass grave that they dug outside. Yeah. You hear this voiceover like, you know, how many days ago did we run out of body bags or something like that? But just this kind of stark brutality of, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow kind of gets like a death scene and, and whatever, but Kate Winslow's character is just like dead. Yeah. That is one thing that feels very realistic to an epidemic like this is like you just stop having time to even kind of take stock of individual deaths like it's just the bodies are coming so fast that you just have to like register and move on yeah reading the accounts from the doctors in italy just thinking about that like the point at which it becomes just like they have to blunt themselves against thinking too much about it because it's just like ongoing i really am Ugh. i mean who knows what's going to happen? Like, I have no idea. <laughs> but I just am thinking like, ah, oh, just like wonder what is going to happen for our own like process of mourning for this. Like whether right. we Americans are like, how's that? How's that going to be? Ah, Right. Another moment that's really striking for me is I guess there's a whole thread in the movie that kind of culminates at the end. But there's this whole issue with Matt Damon's character and his teenage daughter you know, as you mentioned, has this boyfriend yeah. and keeps kind of wanting to, you know, sneak out and see him. There's one point where they're making snow angels in the back and then he, you know, rolls on top of her uh, and is about to kiss her. And no. Matt Damon comes out and like chases him away like a sort of, you know, scandalized Victorian father. <laughs> I mean, the kind of annoying teenage daughter in these scenarios, I think back to like, you know, the early seasons of 24 and stuff like that oh, is yeah. such a kind of infuriating, like stock character. It's always like, oh, you're so like stupid and you just want to do things according to your emotions. <laughs> and we all have to like be serious and compartmentalized and, and whatever. But um, I think it is actually done well in this movie. And she is the smart character who is nonetheless like a smart teenage girl and like has the feelings that a teenage girl has mm-hmm. and doesn't want to just like, give up this whole portion of her life, doesn't want to, you know, die without having, like, you know, kissed a boy or had yeah. sex or, or whatever, whatever point she's, or whatever she's at. Yeah. And this is, you know, basically the end of the movie, but after they start to start ruling out this large-scale vaccine once they've discovered it and they allocate it by birth date, which I think is an idea that just comes straight out of, like, the pandemic response playbook. Like, if it ever gets to the point where they're, like, mass vaccinating people, that's 
seems like the most kind of even-handed way. Mm. So he gets his little vaccine bracelet and he comes over and they have this sort of mock prom Uh. just in their living room with the two of them because that's, you know, the gatherings of two are still allowed at that point, I guess. But it has made me think, I mean, especially as, you know, a parent um, and knowing a lot of other parents with kids of different ages, just all about all the little holes that this thing is kind of punching in people's lives. I mean, there are probably going to be much bigger ones um, quite soon. But right now it's just, you know, school plays and and swim meets and and middle school graduations and all these little things that are going to be like taken away from kids who, you know, don't get those back. I mean, I'm very curious, like what the effect is going to be on me Uh, as well, but like what it's going to be on people who are just at this really like formative stage of their life. And that's, yeah. you know, that's one of a lot of questions. It has me thinking a lot about friendships and, and romantic relationships among like people who are, you know, between 15 and 25 or whatever, which it's like, for me and you, I mean, hopefully our marriages won't break up because of this. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess who knows. But like, I don't know, like, our relationships are pretty stable. But when you're between 15 and 25, like, I feel like it's like every day changes your relationship toward people. And I just keep thinking about the, oh, like all the people who might've just been started to flirt with someone. And then, you know, it's like in your house for three weeks. I mean, they do have social media though. So is that. Right. Yes. We got social media. We got sexting. We yeah, got, you know, say. video chat. Oh. There's creative ways around. Yeah. People, but. Yeah. And in fact, actually, I do believe that the daughter in Contagion, we don't see her sexting, but she is texting constantly with this boy, right. which is so 2011. <laughs> One aspect of this movie that we haven't sort of really talked about yet, because I think, I don't know, for me, it's the least strong. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you'll agree or not, but it's the sort of Walking Dead aspect to yeah. it, the sort of society crumbling. So we have you know, not just kind of runs on the stores, but people, you know, smashing bank windows to, you know, like raid ATMs. And we have, mm-hmm. there's a scene where Matt Damon is kind of looking out his window through the windows of the house across the street at night. And you just, you see these two flashes and hear these two pops of gunfire. And we never find out what happened yeah, you don't. there. You know, society goes to pieces and we enter this sort of time of the wolf scenario, which is, yeah. I mean, that's a sort of constant of dystopian fiction i don't know maybe we'll know when we get there that in a way kind of seems like the least likely here part of it yeah no i know what you mean i think of that scene in the pharmacy when everyone's like crashing the counter trying to get forsythia like i believe that's what they're there for and kind of like no we're not going to stand in line anymore we're going to like scream and yell i mean again if it were a 20 to 30 percent mortality rate and it affected children and young people i don't know i don't know maybe it would be like that I do agree with you, though, that I think for a filmmaker, it's like too tempting to do this. <laughs> like you have the scene where Alan Crumweedy is like out in a biohazard suit going up and down the streets in San Francisco. And there's like trash everywhere and like paper blowing and like just everything is like a complete and total mess. It's like too visually appealing not to do or something. That's kind of, you know, the price you pay. Like, you know, Steven Soderbergh is very much a kind of one for me, one for them filmmaker and that's often true even within movies kind of scene by scene so that's sort of like the price you pay for having a scene where like Kate Winslet gives a long speech about film yeah. and Arnott's. That's right. I feel like we should talk more about the disinformation aspect of this movie. What strikes me so much about it is that there's only one source of disinformation seemingly. Maybe there's others that we don't see and that's just like the narrative thing. 
like it feels so before times to me to only be worried about like one person. Like if we just stamp out Alan Crumweedy, <laughs> then like everything will be fine and everyone will like believe at the authorities. <laughs> Whereas now the information landscape that we're looking at we're already so poisoned and confused about what is real and what's not in the news. And now we have this situation where it's just like a million different factors and a million different people with a million different motivations who are doing things. And then you add the presidential election in. <laughs> and it's just like such a mess that I don't even know. Like if you were going to have someone try to write a movie about the disinformation related to this outbreak, I don't think you could represent it fairly. I don't know. What do you think? I do agree. I mean, it's not... It's not a documentary. I understand. No. Yeah. Well, it, it's not a sort of like a TV screens movie. Like, it's not one in which we're sort of constantly checking in with like what CNN is reporting yeah. about it, which is fine. Like, there are plenty of those movies. That's sort of a more common disaster movie, like, you know, Godzilla trope or whatever. But it is very striking that, yeah, as you say, it's just this one kind of rogue person who's out for self-interest and that does feel very 2011, it does not feel now, it's like the Alan Crumweys are on, you know, primetime. They are on, you know, major networks. They are the president of the United States yeah. um, saying that we've got this other control. They are the That's mayor right. of New York saying that, like, you can't spread the disease if you don't have symptoms. Right. All, like, things that are lies that they are saying, that our authority figures are saying in public, you know, it's not just, like, rogue bloggers. It is the absolute top of the information food chain, the people who should be giving us the clearest information and telling us what to do are actively spreading things that aren't true. Yeah. That feels like a whole different movie. Yeah. Like a, George Orwell, Paul Verhoeven type dystopia. Yeah. I can see why mixing that with this, you know, supposed to be a very kind of realistic, like fact-based account of this would be difficult, but it is another way in which Contagion feels like <laughs> sort of a better, if not a best, at least a better case scenario yeah. than what we're dealing with now. Totally. That is like truly frightening. Yeah, it is truly frightening. I think I've been struck so much in the past couple of weeks, like people trying to calibrate like how afraid to be or what amount of panic is like responsible amount of panic and what amount of panic is beyond the pale. And it's been very complicated for us by the fact that our president and the people who support him have persisted in trying to tag panic as liberal or something. <laughs> or like who is panicked has become like a partisan th thing. Right. And the idea that... Crumweedy is like creating panic and that that's bad. Those of us who consider ourselves to be like a little bit educated or whatever <laughs> about how one should act during an emergency situation, it's like very tempting. And I have older relatives, I love them, who have been doing this, who will say right. like, oh, I don't want to be hysterical about this, which is like in some way like a sober position that this movie is also trying to take. Like Crumweedy is like the one who's sowing hysteria and that's undesirable. But in our situation, we sort of want a little bit more <laughs> hysteria. Yes. It's just complicated. The line that I keep thinking of, and this is a, an entirely unrelated and different movie, but there's a line from the Coen Brothers movie, Miller's Crossing, where Gabriel Byrne's character, who's kind of like the right-hand man, you know, fixer to this mob boss played by Albert Finney, says, I'd worry less if I felt like you were worrying enough. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. is the phrase that, like, I'm undoubtedly, like, worrying too much. Yeah, I'm sure I am. But I <laughs> see so many people not worrying enough, Yeah. you know, unless sort of in my, like, high information uh, little bubble that I live in, but just kind of around my city and around the country. 
like the social distancing and all that. It's not something you can balance out. Like if, if I do it more and someone else does it less, it balances out. Like yeah, it no. doesn't work that way. Like yeah. we need everybody to get to a certain level. Yeah. Also probably it doesn't include like people who listen to this podcast. Probably I mean, not. Like readers are probably, you know, just as educated and therefore like paranoid and, and freaked out yeah. <laughs> as we are. And if but, you're not, you, know, you should please. be. <laughs> yeah. Save a life. Get someone to listen to the spoiler special. That's right. That is like one of the striking things about this movie is that illustration of panic. And that is one of the things that feels wrong or like miscalculated to me. Like we're just at the point now as we record this on Monday where, and you could have seen this coming days ago. I mean, I I, I did. I mean, that restaurants are now kind of yeah. finally being shut down and going takeout only. And I feel like it's just a matter of days before that goes from, hey, I want to get like pho from the Vietnamese place on the corner to like, I'm going to get like, you know, fancy takeout from the best restaurant in town. I sort of am joking. It's only a matter of time until someone's like, you can get like an omakase as like 18 separate deliveries or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Like the, the social stratification. A friend of mine mentioned the J.G. Ballard novel High Rise, you know, which is really oh, about yeah. how kind of class differences like just, they don't like disappear. It's not like, oh, everybody's the same in this situation. It's like, no, they just get more intense. And mm-hmm. I feel like as we become, at least for a little while, kind of more of a kind of, you know, high-end, like, delivery-driven society and prices on things are, are going up and, you know, really suggesting to, you know, tip your delivery person 25% and whatever else. Like, it's just, I feel like those stratifications are just going to kind of amplify and become more intense in a miniseries version of Contagion to get at yeah. that. But that is one of the places where I feel like the movie doesn't really get at some of what I think we're going yeah. to No, I agree. When it comes to the people who don't, who aren't in the know in this movie, there's not very, very many of them. Um, I think it's just Matt Damon, really. The other people that you meet through him, like his daughter and the boyfriend and stuff like that. I guess also the editor, Carmody's editor. And those people are just all like universally panicked and afraid and throwing paper in the streets and litter and stuff. And as you say, there's not really... <laughs> an examination of how this is affecting different kinds of people differently. Right. And there's no scene in this movie where someone has to like call up their grandparents and like beg them to like stop watching Fox News. Oh, right. And, you know, feeling like the way to deal with this is like be brave and keep going to the yeah. store. <laughs> no, you don't need to go to the bakery. <laughs> it's not like... I know. The, like the virus is not interested in stoicism. No. I feel like our sort of, you know, our, our kind of... Anglo-Saxon, like, uh, you know, don't let Hitler win, like, blitz spawned reactions are really just precisely wrong for this scenario. Yeah, we need to be accessing the don't buy flour, don't buy bacon parts of those World War II sacrifices (laughs) instead of I'm going to go to a foxhole and die. It's part of the sacrifice. Yes. If we continue our doing our little pandemic movie club here, maybe we'll talk about a World War II movie some other time. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that I'm curious to hear from you, Rebecca, is basically how having watched this movie made you feel. Because as I mentioned, I was very reluctant to rewatch it. It was basically like I would sooner like jump out a window than like marinate in like a fictional pandemic for a while. But I found it like weirdly comforting. And that's partly just because of like it's fiction, like it's a distance, like it's nice to like pay attention to some other deadly virus for a little while. But it is also because... I mean, I don't remember the final death toll in this. I mean, it's pretty big. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I think millions of people die in the movie. It's it's a stretch to say that it's like a happy ending exactly, but it is 
one in which like normality is restored at the end. Like yeah. they find a vaccine, the government gets it under control. They set up this vaccination program. You know, Matt Damon's daughter gets to go to her prom, yeah. et cetera. And I find that like weirdly comforting in a way. And I'm yeah. wondering if you had a similar experience. I definitely had a similar experience. I mean, I'm thinking about the interaction between the Lawrence Fishburne head of the CDC, Dr. Cheever character. And there's a custodian at the CDC who's played by John Hawks, who's like one of my favorite actors. <laughs> I mean, he has like two scenes. At the beginning of the movie, they have an interaction and John Hawks makes a point that, you know, he has a kid too. And so he's worried about what's going to happen to this kid. And so he's sort of like eavesdropping to try to get information because he's like so nervous about it. And then at the end of the movie, Dr. Cheever ends up giving somehow through having pulled strings, I think, giving the vaccine to the John Hawks character and his kid. And they are shaking hands and talking about how important shaking hands is for like social cohesion, because it evolved as a custom where people shake hands to show that they don't have a weapon in, in their hand, which I wonder if that's true. It probably is. Um, they probably I was going to ask that. you as our sort of historical yeah. consultant if that's accurate. I don't know. I feel like Steven Soderbergh is someone who would check, but maybe not. I'm not sure. But anyway, that interaction, I'm like, oh, okay, great. Like, <laughs> this guy was very worried. Now he's not worried anymore. He got the vaccine and all the like bonds going to be knit back together. And pretty soon he and Dr. Cheever will be like bullshitting about Atlanta like baseball teams or whatever they talk about at the beginning and everything will be pretty much okay, which I know it's a movie and it has to do that, <laughs> but it, it seems a little cheesy to me. So yeah, so I don't think it makes me feel better or worse. I feel like things in real life are both were in a worse situation in some ways <laughs> and in a less scary situation in other ways. And I just don't feel like the movie has that much relevance to our situation in a way. What do you think? One of the moments that I keep going back to is um, we mentioned the Jennifer Ailey character, um, who's a you know kind of virologist who eventually ends up you know she has this um, vaccine developed and needs to go into human trials. Not surprisingly, no one seems to want to volunteer for that, so she ends up injecting it into herself. Yeah. Science will save us all. <laughs> she is fine, hooray! And then that ends up getting mass produced and saving people. And then you have her. And you mentioned John Hawks, and one of the things that's like amazing about this movie is just like every role is filled by some, maybe even not at the time, but now recognizable person. Yeah. So she has like this, you know, assistant. I think he has like two or three lines, but he's played by the you know the comedian and future uh, Daily Show correspondent Dimitri Martin. Yeah, that's right. And you're just like, oh, that's Dimitri Martin in this movie, um, which I was not something I would have said in 2011. Uh-huh. But yeah, so they they go and they open up the little deep freeze where they have you know their samples of H1N1 and SARS, yeah. um, and then take the MEV1 sample and like put it into the deep freeze, you know, where they just like save it for future study or whatever. But it's that's very like, okay, this is put away now, like it's yes, handled. That's right. You know, it's not going to escape, and things start to go back to normal. Mm-hmm. I would really like to be able to like fast forward reality and find out when that point comes for us. That'd be great. You know, and, and another way in which I mean, the movie feels a little more optimistic is we don't, I mean, it's not something the movie deals with at all, but basically the sort of assumption is that when this starts that we're kind of, everything is kind of like normal until this happens. We're not like already in like 12 different crises. Yeah. When the virus yeah. hits. That's what I mean when I say it's like both like a scarier situation in the movie because of the mortality rate and a less scary situation because they are not entering into this from a perspective of deep confusion. 
<laughs> the way that we are. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about covers it. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. That is our show. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcast. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. If you enjoyed this flashback to an older movie, you should also know about our Slate Plus podcast about classic and older movies, which is conveniently named Flashback. Hosted by Slate's own Dana Stevens, along with Vanity Fair's movie critic Kay Austin Collins, the podcast features the two of them flashing back to a pre-2000s movie every two weeks and re-evaluating how the film stands today. So far, they've revisited movies like Kramer vs. Kramer, Silence of the Lambs, The Magnificent Ambersons, and more. Head over to Slate.com slash flashback to sign up for Slate Plus and subscribe to the podcast. Our producer is Rosemary Belson. For Rebecca Onion, I'm Sam Adams. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.